if you would, join me there this morning. Romans chapter 1. Uh, I think this is technically the fourth uh, installment of this Romans study. I, I don't count the first one against me because that was mostly intro, right? So really we spent a message, verses 1 through 7 and then verses 8 through 15. And this morning we will spend all of our time in two verses. Um, before we read those two verses... You, those of you who have your Bibles open, you can kind of glance back and you see a little trilogy that is building. Paul says in verse 14, I am under obligation. I am a debtor. I owe it. Since I have been given the gospel, I owe it to the rich and the poor, the sophisticated, unsophisticated, educated, uneducated. I owe it to everybody. And that leads to verse 15. So verse 14, I am debtor. Verse 15, I am ready to preach. So Paul, what are you ready to preach? Verse 16, he begins with another personal statement he says for I am not ashamed I'm a debtor I'm ready I am not ashamed of the gospel why for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek we're in that category most of us category of the Greek for in it in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written here's his text from Habakkuk we talked about week number one Paul's text for the whole book is this next line the righteous shall live by faith or as the King James words it there the just or we could say the justified ones shall live by faith. Uh, We've heard about the gospel already in this text. Paul's told us the gospel's about a person. It's about Jesus. He's told us the gospel was promised. So God promised before it ever came there was going to be this good news. And now in verse number 16, Paul finally gets to kind of the heart of what the gospel's about. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. Salvation. So here's one thing we want to notice. Right out of the gate this morning is Paul is going to lay a foundation for why in the world is salvation even necessary. All across Anderson County this morning, all across the United States and around the world, people like me are standing in places like this telling people, you need to be saved. Saved from what? Why is salvation even necessary? In the text we read, there was implied two things, and actually the one, you won't have it on the screen, But if you have your Bible open, if you look on down into verse number 18, the Bible says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. So why is salvation even necessary? Reason number one, we've been talking about this on Wednesday night. Here it comes. Listen carefully. God is holy. He cannot tolerate sin. And the second reason, salvation, why do we need to be saved? Is because we are sinners. So this little, this little two-section verse, this little two-verse section is going to kick off a whole section of Romans that's going to run all the way through chapter number 3. And in it, really, here's what's happening. Paul's going to give us just a taste of there is some good news, I promise. Listen, good news is coming. Good news. There's this thing called the gospel, and it really does lead to salvation. It's the power of God. Because as soon as these two verses are over, we're going to go, we're going to plunge, and I, I don't mean this, you know sarcastically or with pun this is real we are going to plunge deeply into man's condition and we're not good people you guys look really nice today though by the way you look good but you are like me boy there is sin just raging ready to be turned loose at any point and there's not a one of us in here that would want everyone to know all that we've ever done said or thought nobody in here would want that told on themselves I know I don't I can't believe God lets me do this I'm totally disqualified But God says, that's what you're going to do. And we're all the same. It's going to get bad once we get to verse 18, head on in through chapter 20. But for today, we get to deal with some good news. Before we jump into the verses, really, I want you to notice the first line. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Warren Wearsby asked this question, why would Paul feel like he even needs to mention that he's not ashamed? I'm going to borrow a quote from Wearsby. He writes the following. So get the, here's the setting. Paul is writing to church, the church Christians in the city of Rome. 
They're not just Roman. This is the capital city of the Roman Empire. Wiersbe offers the following why Paul would say he's not ashamed. Quote, for one thing, the gospel was identified with a poor Jewish carpenter who was crucified. The Romans had no special appreciation for the Jews. You may say, boy, America better stand with Israel. They didn't have that. And crucifixion was the lowest form of execution given a criminal. So he asked, why put your faith in a Jew who was crucified? Paul says, I, I'm not ashamed of that message. Where's we continues? Rome, the city, was a proud city and the gospel came from Jerusalem, the capital city of one of the little nations that Rome had conquered. Furthermore, the Christians in that day were not among the elite in society. They were common people, even slaves. So why pay any attention to a fable about a Jew who arose from the dead? And in the kicker, Christians looked on each other as brothers and sisters, all one in Christ. Well, that went against the grain of Roman pride. We're the Romans. We conquered Jerusalem. We don't need anything coming out of Jerusalem. Paul says, oh, you need this. This is the message of salvation. And I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Hey, I want to challenge you right here. Everybody, want, every one of us. Have you ever been in a position where you have found yourself ashamed of the gospel? You ever been there? And by the way, the gospel is not talking about God. The gospel is talking about Jesus and us being sinners and him being the payment for sin. Have you ever been there? I have. I wish I could tell you, man, I'm never ashamed of the gospel. I don't find anywhere where Paul was ever ashamed of the gospel. He, he spoke it in front of kings. He spoke it apparently in front of Caesar. He speaks it in front of governors and judges and rulers and common people. Huge crowds, single individuals. Paul is constantly, he is never ashamed of it. Now this guy right here, I have been. I remember I was in my 20s. I went home back toward uh, my home in, in North Carolina and I, I, we lived north of Asheville but our church was east of Asheville and I remember I, I was in my 20s went home and usually my Uncle Lewis anytime I was back home he'd get me to preach and sometimes you're going to be here tonight you're going to preach Sunday morning and Sunday night I didn't have a choice he's like you're going to do this and you need to train and all that I'm like yes sir or whatever and so I remember I preached on Sunday but for some reason I was sticking around and it was it was summertime and I was going to help my brother so my brother does plumbing and contracting and different things and and my cousin also does this. My cousin Randy and all my uncles, that's what the Bartlett's do around Asheville. And so I'm with my brother, and about 8 o'clock on Monday morning, we're at this place called Ferguson. And that's where the plumbers go. And the place is jam-packed, crowded. And there's a counter, and there's literally like eight or nine counters with the little stools, and these guys are up making orders. I need, I need 100, feet, 100 feet of, of Schedule 40 PVC pipe, and I need it in 20-foot lengths, and I need couplings and L's and all this. They're making all these orders. I'm telling you guys, it was a room probably about 45 feet wide, and me and my brother were way over to the one end. My brother was kind of giving his orders, some copper fittings, this, that, and the other. And I was the grunt guy. I'm going to go dig ditches that day, and I, I love doing that. It's fun. And because uh, school was out and rest the brain and let's work the body for a little while. In comes my cousin Randy, way on the other side. And I'm telling you, there's like 20 plumbers. And as soon as he walks in, Jeff, hey, man, that was a good sermon yesterday. And I'm thinking, hey, come over here and let's use our inside boys. <laughs> I'm like, man, Randy's comfortable in Ferguson. I'm not comfortable in Ferguson. And everybody's like, oh, that? man, that's great. I love the part about that. And I'm like, hey, yeah. Hey, thank you, appreciate that. And what are we ordering? I just preached yesterday, but all of a sudden now, in the work world, whoa, let's, let's kind of keep it down. It's one of the things I've always admired about my cousin. He's just kind of out there. You know what Paul says? I'm never going to be ashamed. It will present itself before the week's over. What causes you to be ashamed of the gospel? Paul has vowed, I will never be silent. I will never hang my head as though what I believe is lesser than what everybody else believes. I want to be like that. I don't ever want to think, guys, I know what I believe. And I know what I believe is not popular and it's becoming less and less popular. But I'm convinced. We've all seen the little kid and some of us have been a little kid right here. They go to school and they get the rah-rah speech in the gym. And, hey, you do this and do this. And if you sell enough, you're going to get a remote control something, right? Or if you sell enough, you get $100. You sell enough, you go to Disney World. And 
You can always tell when the brothers or the brother's sister or the sisters go out. You can always tell the older one, right? Because they go up and the younger one's like, Hey, do you want to buy my pizza kit? Right? Or do you want to buy candles or Christmas cards for me? And you can kind of tell the older one because they, they didn't really buy the rah-rah speech. They're kind of ashamed. And, hey, I, can I just stay in the car? No, you go with your brother because if you're getting half of the money, you're going to go with them. And the little one's all excited. Paul's the little one. Paul says, man, I'm excited. I believe it. I believe it no matter who I'm talking to. I'm convinced. Paul says, I'm not ashamed. We're going to look at this verse, these two verses today. But I want us to take a quick comparison. Flip over like one book, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. I want to give you just a quick setting for what's taking place here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Y'all have heard me kind of give some of these background, and I, I won't go all, all into the background. Just suffice to say, Paul is now writing a letter to the Corinthians, like he's writing to the Romans, except he's been to Corinth, he's never been to Rome. And he knows the Corinthians, and now he's reminiscing. He's kind of reminiscing. I remember when I first came to Corinth. I had never been there, but boy, when I came and, and this and this started happening. And Paul is going to let us see an insight to his whole approach. Now, here's what you have to know. He had just left Athens. He has just left Athens. These are the smartest, most intellectual. This is the elite of the elite. These are the guys, the people in Athens where Paul presented himself. These were the people that debated the nature of things, physical and spiritual. They debated the origin of things, the, the smartest. We, we go on and we say, I know somebody. Man, I'm reading after this guy. He's really, really smart. No, this is the best the world had to offer. These are the geniuses of the day. Paul has an opportunity to go present his beliefs to the Areopagus, Mars Hill, to their elite group, their senate. And really, he's not a criminal. We're seeing, are you a candidate to be one of us? Paul just had left Athens and has made his way to Corinth. And I'll go ahead and tell you, it didn't go so great in Athens. A few got saved, but for the most part, they mocked him. And with that in mind, Paul, having just rubbed elbows with the elite, the smartest, who would know all the cutting-edge arguments on philosophical things and scientific things and archaeological things of that day, here Paul says, I have a new perspective. Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at verse 17. For Christ did not send me to baptize. He's not saying it's wrong. I believe in baptism. It's great. Paul's just like, I just don't really usually baptize people because I don't want them thinking, hey, I'm really saved because Paul baptized me. Paul's like, it doesn't matter who baptized. It's just you need to go public with your faith. Verse 17 again. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom. That's what you're going to have to have. You're going to have to have eloquent, wise words to win people to Christ. And Paul says, yeah, I tried that in Athens. Not doing that anymore. Lest the cross. Paul, why are you not using words of eloquent wisdom? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross. That, you know that word? Hey, brother, you got a word for us today? Stand and give us a word. What that means is the message, the preaching of the cross, here's the facts, guys. I want to tell you. And by the way, this is getting worse and worse. Here's the facts. Paul wrote it 2,000 years ago, and it is very true today. The word of the cross, the preaching of the cross, is folly to those who are perishing. <laughs> That's stupid. There are people today, if they, they, if they know what I believe, they'd say, man, I feel really sorry for you. That is pathetic. Not only do you believe that, but you're wasting your life believing it, but you're also dragging other people with you you're spending your whole life for that what a waste that's what they think but the bible says they think that because they are perishing but to us who are being saved it's the power of god for it is written god says i will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning i will thwart where is the one who is wise god says where is the scribe where is the debater of this age? Man, there's a lot of debate going on in the day and age we live. A lot of debate. Especially, I know you, you young folks, y'all are really in it. and you, you go to college and your faith is attacked. We got them right here this morning. I'm telling, I guarantee you this week you have heard things that go fly right in the face of what this book teaches. And you're in a struggle. Man, I, I was always taught the Bible is true, but now they're showing me this. And we've got all these things. Let me keep reading. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world 
For since in the wisdom of God, God made a law, God made a rule, he's the wise one, here's how he set it up. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach, not just foolish preaching, the folly to them of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. Jesus, do something. Moses fed all the children of Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. Surely you can do something greater than him. They wanted a sign. Jesus says, I'll give you one sign. It'll be my resurrection. They still didn't believe it. Greeks seek wisdom. You've got to really bring out the latest, greatest facts and, and prove it to us. Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. Yeah, it's a stumbling block to the Jews and it's folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, to those, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Can we have the Acts passage up? I want to just put, uh, there's I think a couple of verses. Here's what happened. You said, what happened when Paul went to Athens? Paul goes to Athens and he goes down to, this is before Corinth, and it's before he's writing the book of Romans. So he goes into the city of Athens and he goes down to the synagogue and he's ministering to the Jews. But he's also doing street evangelism. And the Bible says some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, this is Athens, also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign di divinities because he was preaching, watch this, Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul's dealing with people. He's constantly preaching Jesus, 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 the resurrection. It's like, what is all that? This guy's got some new stuff, and they love new stuff. And they took him and brought him to the area of Pegasus, to Mars Hill. That's their court system, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Now, I'm gonna, you see that we're skipping several verses. We have a summary in verse 32. Now, when they, here's in front of the smartest guys in the world, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, you know what, I need to hear more. But they mocked. Now, I will tell you, listen carefully. If you were to read, pause, read the message that's between verse 19 and verse 32 there, if you were to go back in Acts, here's what you would find. Paul starts with God as the creator because they didn't really accept. I see you have many, many gods here in Athens, but I want to talk to you about what you call the unknown God, and he, he talks about him being the creator, even the very sustainer. But before it's over, here's my key point. Paul is saying, I've got to get to the gospel. I am not going to bog down talking how God, there's something in you that knows that God is the creator. There's something in you that knows. Your own poet said, by him we live, move, and have our being. By him we live, we move, we have our being, our wits, our mind about us. It's by him. He's sustaining us. But very quickly, he moves to Jesus is the judge and the savior of the world. And he talks how he died and he was resurrected. And as soon as he got to the resur resurrected, ha! this guy thinks people can come back to life. And they mocked him. And so Paul, here's what he determines when he comes back to Corinth. And this is what he's not ashamed of when he writes to the Romans. I'm going to keep preaching Jesus and the resurrection no matter what people say. No matter what they say. They can mock. They can do all these things. Would you go back with me? Uh, we're, we're still here. Look at verse number 17 again. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Ladies and gentlemen, we live in a day where the self-proclaimed intellectual elite constantly challenge even if there's a God. And is that Bible valid? Doesn't some of these things offset what the Bible has to say? And by the way, that will only get worse and worse. Paul determined that when he presented truth to a lost world, catch what I'm saying, he would not, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, I am not going to let side issues keep me from getting to the main thrust. I don't know if you guys have ever talked to people about their soul or not, but here's what I have found. I'll start doing that, and, and I'll, I'll hear this. Uh, what do y'all believe about tongues? I'm sorry? Yeah, like speaking in the tongues. I got an aunt that, uh, okay, well, listen, that's great. Man, that's, a, that's like a big subject. Man, we'd have to go back into Joel, and we'd have to go into Acts, and 1 Corinthians, and, and Peter. And listen, let's talk about that one day. But right now, let's, let's focus on what the Bible says about us and how we go to heaven. Paul's not going to get sidetracked on tongues. Oh, what's your denomination down there, Grace View? Well, we're, we're a Baptist church, but that's not the main thing. Can I show you what the Bible says? But how are y'all different from, like, this denomination or that denomination? And what's your standards? 
man, those are some okay questions, but let's talk about this. How's your soul? How is it with you and God? You see what he's doing? What kind of music? What do y'all think's the right and the wrong kind? Or, or what about the latest discoveries and, and how, they, how they seem to go against? And Paul's like, listen, we can talk about that a little bit, but he is constantly trying, like, I need to get you back to one main thing, the gospel. So what about all of that? You say, hey, I'm actually talking with somebody right now, and they don't, really don't want to make any advancement because they want to bog down on these things. If I could advise you, I would say one main thing, learn what God sounds like, always obey the Holy Spirit, but try as fast as possible to deal politely with some of these issues, but get them back to the main thing. Here's why. I want to read something I've typed out. Remember this. Their spirit is dead. Their spirit's dead. They're not able to understand the truths on these side issues. Though biblical issues, these are side issues until you've dealt with the one main issue. The Bible says a person must have childlike faith. I'm looking for an answer from the audience. I'm looking for an answer from the audience. The book of Proverbs, Solomon tells us the very beginning of wisdom is what? Fear of God. Many people in our day do not have fear of God. You say, fear is all I'm afraid. It's this idea. I acknowledge you and you are a fearsome God. My my life's in your hands. I acknowledge you are real. You made me and I will report back to you. Many people in our day and age don't even have the basics. They think they're really, really wise, but they don't have the basic foundation of wisdom. They don't even acknowledge God. They don't have childlike faith. They don't have true wisdom. And I'm going to, sorry to be so blunt here, some never will. Some of them never will. Scripture is teaching us, Paul is saying his attitude is, I'm going to stay focused on the gospel. Why? If I could, one last, and we're going to get into our points, one last thought here. Give the gospel a chance. Oh, by the way, let me back up before that. Are you talking to people about your faith? Let's start. Number one, talk to people about your faith. Share your faith. When you do, you're going to come across someone, and these things are going to come up. Don't talk all around the gospel without ever getting to the gospel. Make sure you get to the gospel. Here's why. They believe innately. They've probably been taught not to believe. Maybe the gospel is just going to be the very thing that sparks them. Hey, listen, man, I I realize you believe different than I do, but I believe the Bible that God created us and we sinned against him and we stand in condemnation. But he loved us enough enough to send us a Savior who died on the cross. Now, him dying on the cross is not going to save you unless you receive it. So I'm just here to tell you, you never know. Smack. That's what I needed to hear. It woke faith up in them. Back to Romans 1. Romans chapter 1. Paul, why are you not ashamed of the gospel? Verse number 16 gives us the first of three reasons in our passage. Why are you not ashamed? Number one, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I had you, and you can hold your spot in Romans. In fact, uh, do we have a Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15? I hope that's uh, able to be displayed. Look at what 1 Corinthians, this gives a very concise version of the gospel. Say, Jeff, we've talked about the gospel, but what is it? Here it is. You've got to get this. Paul says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. But, but, but what is it, Paul? He says, I'm bringing this back to your remembrance. It's verse 3 and 4. This is the gospel. Paul says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Here's what Paul says. I received it, I gave it to you, and it took with you, Corinthians. But what's the gospel? Notice the last 27 words of verses 3 and 4. That Christ died. You say, what is the gospel? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. So if we take those four verses, here's the gospel. Listen carefully. There is a God. He has a son who became a man. His name is Jesus. He is the Christ. He's the Christ. The Christ died on a cross for our sins. He died according to the scriptures. He was buried, proving he really was dead. And he was buried also according to the scripture in a rich man's tomb. 
But he rose again, Psalm 16, according to the scriptures. And the key is verses 1 and 2. To, to, you say, yes, many people died on a, on a cross back in the Roman time. Many did, but this one died for our sins. He died to take away our sin, and he died to take away the penalty for our sin. We'll make an important statement. You see that? It really is this simple. Either you hear that and you believe it and live, or you hear that and you reject it and you will die eternally. It is that simple. Those 27 words are the power of God. We talk about power. Usually when I think of power, I start thinking of destructive things. Dynamite, earthquakes, you do too, right? Other than gravity, gravity is really, really strong. But we think about nuclear bombs and, and this guy over here, he has the power to do all this damage. We think about power very negatively. But what Paul is describing, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. He's talking about something that's very positive. Hey, I wonder how many times this has happened. Has this ever happened? You know, somewhere today it's happening. Somewhere this hour, this is going to happen. Two or three cool teenagers. They're cool. They're really cool. And they're over kind of splashing at the edge of the water, and they're carrying their little boogie boards. And most people up on the, it's, it's happening probably right now, like 1130. What better time? Mom and dad's up there. You know, they've dozed off, you know, or mom's out there kind of waiting. Meanwhile, little kid over here has been building a sandcastle for, for an hour. And here comes a cool teenager. And one of them, either he's going to be the leader or he's going to try to impress the leader. And so he gets this bright idea. <laughs> Watch this, man. And he's going to run over and he's going to go over where the little kid is and step on his castle. Oh, oop, did I do that? Hey, he's going to kick his little sandcastle. Why? Because, man, he's big and strong and he's cool. I'm a lot stronger than you. I got more power than that little kid. So I destroyed your little sandcastle. But real power, better power, is the other teenager that was up the hill a little bit and just kind of watched all that. Makes his way down. Hey, buddy. What? Man, I saw what they did. These guys are jerks. Hold on, buddy. Listen. Let's build it back. Huh? I want to help you. Let's build it back. And they build it back way bigger, way better, way funner. That's power. Hey, any old jerk can kick, kick, kick a little kid's sandcastle. Can you help him build one? You know what God says? I can destroy, and God has the power. He can, and frankly, I'm going to tell you, he will destroy. God will destroy. But God can construct and build. Hold your spot here. Would you go with me, Acts chapter 2. Flip over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. How is the gospel powerful? Acts chapter 2. This is the day of Pentecost. This is... May or June, late May, early June. Yeah. Look at verse 36. Peter is standing in the temple and he's preaching a message to a huge crowd of people. We know that 3,000 will get saved. Watch verse 36. Let all the house, actually, I'm going to do this. We're showing how the gospel is powerful. The gospel is powerful in conviction. The gospel is powerful in conviction because that's what I want you to see in this passage. Paul says, or Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord. You, you know his name is Jesus. You know he's from Bethlehem. You know he lived up in Nazareth. You know he's a man. You put him to death two months ago. God has made him, God the Father, who you believe in, has made Jesus both Lord and Christ. You continue to look for Christ. Paul is, Peter's preaching to his Jewish audience. He says, God the Father has made Jesus Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. The word there means stabbed, like instantaneously, painfully. Have you ever had that happen to you? Well, I got cut to the heart when I was nine years old. My hands were sweating, my... my heart was just racing my mind was flying I, I could just see I'm, I'm headed for hell I need to do something about this and I'd heard the truth and that was the night I got saved verse 37 when they heard this they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles brothers but what shall we do you know what they didn't say we didn't kill him that's not our fault they admit yes we did kill him what shall we do is there any hope Two months prior, back up, rewind real quick. Does anybody remember what many, many, many in this same crowd were shouting two months prior? 
Let that sink in. Crucify. Crucify. Crucify him. Do you guys know they had seen miracles from Jesus? They had seen some of, some of the people that are in this crowd shouting crucify literally saw him. I know that guy was blind and now he sees and that's the guy. I know his legs were all twisted and, and weak and now he walks because of this man. But for some reason, because the power of the riot and, 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 and being influenced by leadership, all of a sudden now they're out, they're catching themselves, don't even know why, crucified, demonically driven, crucify, crucify. Of course, God is sovereign over all and he's going to use it to his glory. Here's my point. These people saw miracles. Three people raised from the dead. Confirmed resurrections. One, four days stinking dead. Back to life. They've seen all that, all that evidence. That did not convict them. Peter, standing on the day of Pentecost with spirit-filled preaching, convicts them. All he does is he stands up and he shares the gospel. I don't have any great miracles. Now, by the way, the Holy Spirit did allow them to speak in tongues, but these people, they don't know all that's been going on. All they know is, man, this, this guy's message is powerful, and it is striking them to the heart. Back to Romans. Verse number 16 again. How is the gospel powerful? It's powerful in conviction. It is also powerful in salvation. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. It's the power of God. It saves us from our sins, and it saves us from the penalty of sin, which is hell. Hey, if you're in your sins today, you say, man, I'm just so sick and tired of my sins. The gospel saves you from sin. How else? The gospel is powerful not only in conviction and salvation, but it's powerful in transformation. Transformation. Write that word down. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to turn there, and if you just want to listen, that's fine. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul is writing again to the Corinthians and he's, gonna, he's talking about the, his Jewish audience. He's talking about in Moses' day and how the, how the nation of Israel responded to Moses. But watch verse 14. How is the gospel powerful in, trans, in, in transformation? Verse 14. Talking about the children of Israel in Moses' time, Paul says, but their minds were hardened. Their minds were hardened. For to this day, when he's writing this, thousands of years later, hundreds of years later, 1,500 years later, here's what he writes. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, what we call the Old Testament, that same veil remains unlifted. Because only through Christ is it taken away. So here's, he's saying of his own people, Paul says, my, my people, they, I love them. They read the Bible, but they're reading it with a veil. They are not seeing the truths. They're getting all the facts, but not the truths. They're missing the whole point. Yes, verse 15, to this day whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Watch verse 18. And we all, different from then, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. The idea here is not only are we beholding the glory of the Lord as we read the Scriptures, but we are now going to reflect the glory of the Lord. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We are being transformed. You catch it? For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You ever seen that older couple? That if you knew them when they were younger and they first got married 60 years ago, they couldn't have been more different, but now they don't look like a couple. Are you guys brother and sister? Because you like finish each other's sentences and you have all the same mannerisms. Why? You know what they're saying? I've just been around them so long, they've just kind of rubbed off on me. One of my best friends in high school was a guy named Wesley. And um, Wesley always had a little tick about him. He had something, I don't know if he had, um, he may listen to this one day. Wes, I'm not saying you had it, possibly. You may have had mild, mild, mild Tourette's, I don't know. I'm just saying. He always had something that he would be doing that was kind of glitchish. And I remember one day, there, there was a season, one, one time he heard preaching on, out of the book of James. Don't say that you're going to do this or that tomorrow. You should say, if the Lord wills, I will do that. Wesley heard that message, man. He took it to heart. He constantly started this sentence. Hey, Wes, you coming to ball practice? Lord willing, I'll be there at 3 o'clock. Hey, Wes, uh, you're going to run over? Let's go to Pizza Hut. Lord willing. Everything was Lord willing, Lord willing, Lord willing. It's like all the time, Lord willing. I caught myself going around saying, Lord willing, Lord willing, Lord willing. Why? Because I was around Wesley all the time. And I remember he started doing this stupid thing with his eyes. 
kind of do it. He'd just widen them. He'd be talking to you, and he'd just kind of do that. And, and then he would kind of do this dumb thing with his neck, like that. One, two. The worst thing is, I remember one day, my mom's going, what are you doing? I'm like, what? She says, why do you keep doing that thing with your neck and your eyes? And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Stupid Wes, I'm going to kill him. Here's the point. Christian, keep coming to church, but I want to tell you, you want your life transformed? You spend time in this book, you, you and the Holy Spirit, as often as possible. If daily, man, if daily, you say, I really want to grow this year. You spend time in this book daily, and you will start be being, be, become transformed to what you are seeing, to the very image of God. That gets you on the fast track. The gospel is powerful in conviction. It saves us, but it doesn't just save us from hell. It actually starts transforming our very lives here. Back to Romans. Romans chapter 1 again. Paul says it's to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Not everyone's going to be saved. Everyone who believes will be saved. It's to the Jew first and also it's not to the Jew only. I don't understand it all. Here's what I know. Jesus came and he offered the kingdom. He offered the kingdom to the Jews. And there was a couple of times... He did talk to a Samaritan woman. She was half Jewish. And as another time, there was a woman said, hey, uh, can I get in on this? And Jesus like, hey, whoa, you know that the food is for the, the children and, and it's not for the dogs. Jesus just in essence said, you are a Gentile dog. And I'm, I'm a Gentile dog. But the woman answered in faith and said, but don't the little dogs get at least the little crumbs that fall off the table? And Jesus says... Ladies and gentlemen, I've not found so great a faith in all of Israel. You are going to get in on it. But his message was, I'm giving it to the people of Israel. Jesus offered the kingdom to the Jews. They rejected it. Then on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 get saved, but for the most part, the leadership rejects it. I've often wondered, what would have happened had the Jews accepted the kingdom? Well, we wouldn't be here right now. We would already have the thousand-year reign, and we would be in eternity. But they rejected it. They rejected it. Finally, so for like eight or nine years the church in Jerusalem is just Jewish but eventually they take it out to the Gentiles but even as they go Paul says before I offer it to the Gentiles I'm going to find the Jews in the town and I'm going to offer it to the Jew first and then also to the Greek so it is for everyone but it starts with the Jews hey Gracefully, this is something for us to remember we need to remember the Jews in our missions we need to remember the Jews in our day to day outreach they are still the chosen special people of God the gospel is to the Jew first. Number two, very quickly. Paul, why are you not ashamed of the gospel? He says, because it's the power of God. Number two, because the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. Verse number 17. I'm not ashamed of it, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. If you're doing your handout this morning, you have four areas I want you to look at. We're going to write these words. Here's, here's what we're trying to answer. How do we know God really is righteous? The preachers say he's righteous. The Bible's constantly telling us Jesus, that God is righteous. He always does what's right. How do we know that God is righteous? Write this down. We know that God is righteous because of condemnation. Condemnation. Can I word it this way? God is so holy. He really meant what he said. I cannot tolerate sin. I can't tolerate it. I can't have it around me. If you have sin, you cannot live with me in heaven. But not only that, I can't not, not only can I not tolerate it, I cannot just overlook it. I must punish sin because he is righteous. Can I say it this way? Hell exists partly because God is righteous. And we're sinners. How do we know that God is really righteous? Number two, because of propitiation. And I haven't even looked. Uh, that's a word that I know is in a translation I grew up on. I don't even know if the ESV will use that. This is a word that is going to be coming. This is an idea that's going to be coming in the book of Romans. You say, what is propitiation? You see this. God is so holy. How do we know he's holy? Because God required the highest of prices, his own son's life, to appease his wrath. Here's some people's version of propitiation. Yeah, Christ took away sin. Absolutely, he took away sin. But it was more than that. Christ 
appeased the wrath of God. And you're like, well, I like to think of God as a nice God, and I don't really see him as a wrathful thing, because wrath is kind of shameful. No, our selfish human wrath is shameful, but God's wrath is pure and holy and righteous, and he hates sin and has determined sin must be punished. And Jesus was the only sacrifice worthy of paying for a whole human race of sin justification how do we know that God really is righteous justification we could say it this way God is so holy that faith is the only way to receive salvation say brother Jeff what if I live I'm not saying I can but what if I like don't sin ever again praise the Lord you'll be the first but what if you say okay hold on hold on hold on what if I not only don't do any more sin but what if I do like all kinds of good things till I die praise the Lord you still will not have earned salvation Romans 10 will come up on the screen I want you to read what Paul had to say about his own people Romans 10 Paul says brothers he's talking about the Jewish nation here my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved for I bear them witness They have a zeal for God, boy, the Jewish nation. They have a zeal for God. Here's the problem. Not according to knowledge. For being ignorant, being ignorant of the righteousness of God. They don't know how right. They know he is righteous. They don't know how righteous. Paul's trying to say he is way more righteous than we can ever imagine. God is so righteous. Any sin whatsoever permanently disqualifies you from ever getting to heaven on your own. Just one little thing. If you ever break any point of the law, You say, I've never done like nine out of the ten things, but boy, I I got a coveting problem. You are disqualified from heaven. Paul says of the Jewish nation, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, the idea of their own righteousness. They did not submit to God's righteousness. They do a lot of wonderful things, run circles around this guy. But Paul says it's ignorance. The reason they're doing it is because they think they're actually getting somewhere. He says, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I chose to believe my way to heaven. I'm not going to try to perform my way to heaven. When I was younger, you wouldn't know it now, by the way, I I had an okay vertical leap. It was okay. Uh, Five, eight and a half, five, nine on a good day, I guess. Um, At one point when I was in my late teens, early 20s, uh, I could dunk a volleyball. Could never dunk a basketball, and that's kind of disappointing, and I guess those days were... Quincy, could you dunk a basketball when you were younger? Couldn't? Okay, I was wondering. Uh, some of you could, but uh, man, I never could. But I could get a volleyball, okay? This is pretty good, pretty good little vertical leap. Now I've got one about like that, you know, <clears throat> a couple phone books. But uh, if you were to stand me at the edge of the Grand Canyon on my best day, I'd never. Come on, man, you, you can dunk a volleyball, jump on across there. I'd never even attempt it. Why? Because that's foolish. Paul is saying God is so righteous that if we as human beings had even an inkling of how righteous he is, we would never think for a moment, I'm going to earn my way to heaven. And that's what these poor people he's talking about were trying to do. How holy and righteous is God, it's revealed in sanctification. God is so holy, he's so holy that when he comes in a person's life, he literally starts producing righteousness. He produces righteousness in the new believer's life. Hey, Paul, yes. You ever going to be ashamed? Never. Why are you not ashamed of the gospel? Number one, because it's the power of God. Number two, because the gospel reveals the very righteousness of God. It's all through it. You see his righteousness in condemnation, in propitiation, in justification, the whole method we're saved. And in what happens after you get saved, sanctification. It's his righteousness through and through from faith for faith. And then number three, as is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Third thing today, Paul says... I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel provides righteousness from God. Very important wording there. The gospel provides righteousness from God. You'll not see the word here in, in the ESV that, that is this, our chosen uh, translation. But look at Paul's text for the whole book. The righteous shall live by faith. Does anybody remember the word I used earlier? The just shall live by faith. The justified ones shall live by faith. On the surface, this sounds like, hey, the righteous, they'll live. 
It sounds like those who achieve the best life are the ones that's going to live forever. Paul's saying that's not at all what I'm talking about. I'm telling you that the righteous, the ones that God says are righteous, the just ones, not of themselves, but the justified ones. So as I read that little phrase, kind of three quick questions come into my mind. Number one, who? The just. The just, the righteous. And can I say this? Only they will live. And so he's introducing a theme at the end of verse number 17 that's going to run through, wow, the whole first half of, of Romans. And I want to tell you it's a very difficult one. I'm going to go ahead and confess. I'm going to touch on it. And I know somebody here that knows these theological terms is going to say, I can't believe he talked about justification and didn't even explain how it says that. I'm, we're going to get to it. But I just want to touch the surface. To begin with, I'm going to borrow from William Barclay. He compares how this text in Greek which originally started in the Hebrew language in the Old Testament, Habakkuk. Paul is using it, writing it in Greek in the book of Romans. And how we look at it in English, it's very, very different. Here's what Barclay writes, and he's qualified to write this. He truly is a scholar. He's talking about in English. Catch this. It's going to get tricky for a second. If we justify ourselves, I feel like I need to justify myself, okay? We produce reasons to prove that we were right. We produce reasons to prove we were right. But he says, all verbs in Greek, like here, which end the way that one did, do not mean to prove a person or a thing to be something, or to make a person or a thing to be something. It doesn't mean God's going to prove we're righteous. It doesn't even mean God makes us righteous. What does it mean? He says, they always mean, verbs that end like this one does in the Greek language, they always mean to treat or account or reckon a person to be something. So again, it's not that God's proving we were something. It's not that God uh, is even making us something. It is God will treat. Now he sums it up. He says, now if God justifies sin, uh, the sinner... If God justifies the sinner, it does not mean that he finds reasons to prove that the sinner was right. Far from it. It does not mean, hey, if you're unsaved today, you need to listen right here. It does not mean that at this point, he even makes the sinner a good man. But if I get saved, I'm not going to be able to do it, right? I just can't do it all. I can't be like you guys are. You're right. You can't be all that God wants you to be. You can't. You can't. But he continues. He says, it does not mean that at this point he even makes the sinner a good man. What it does mean is that God treats the sinner as if he had not been a sinner at all. I like that I'm that way. God does not treat me as if I've, I've ever even sinned. Instead of treating the sinner as a criminal to be obliterated, God treats him as a child to be loved. I could give you just a workable definition for what is justification it's where God is judge. When he justifies a person, he literally declares over that person they are forensically, legally righteous and pure and innocent. You say, but I know that guy. I've got evidence. Well, here's what God says. I've already done away with all the evidence. Forensically in my courtroom. Well, what happened to the evidence? Great question. Matt, can we put up Colossians chapter 2? Colossians 2, verse 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Oh, so God just arbitrarily decides, I'll just forgive these. No, it's not that he just arbitrarily decides God did something with the sin. What, what did he do with it? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside. He moved it aside, nailing it to the cross. On people's crosses, it would be put above their head. Why is that, Mama, why is that man on a tree? Why is he up there dying? Um, honey, that one there, that was, a, that, was a, that was a robber. Okay, Mama, what about this? Well, that was a robber too. Mama, what about that one right there? Well, apparently his crime is that he's the king of the Jews. Is that a crime? I didn't know it was. 
Jesus didn't die because he's the king of the Jews. He died. Listen carefully. If you do not know the Lord as your Savior, you need to hear this. He died because he took your sins and put them on the cross. It's not that God just decides, okay, I'm going to act like you, you don't have any sin. What happens is God judged your sin in his son on the cross. It really was dealt with. And now all your sin is removed if you'll accept it. And then at that moment, at that very moment, God declares over the person, you are now declared righteous. And by the way, I'm the judge. I get to make the rules. God can do that. Who the just, what they shall live. That's a promise. In this room right now, there are people who will live once and die twice. And there are in this room people who will die once and live twice. Say, how's that happen? What happened? What the Bible is saying, the righteous shall live. They really will live. Oh, they'll still die physically, but they will never die eternally. They'll only die one time, and they'll never be separated from God. That's what death is. Their soul and their spirit will leave their body one day, and we'll have a service. But they will never die eternally because they're going to live on and on and on in eternity. That's a great promise. But it's more than that. Once God declares a person to be righteous, then it's settled. It has to happen. Here's what else. I think, I, I really believe verse 17 at the end is saying this. As it's written, the righteous, the justified ones, the just ones shall live. They shall live. Listen, not only will they live on. This is kind of tricky. Catch this. Not only will they live on but they'll live out their faith in this life. How? They'll live by faith. You say, right, we're going to live forever. We're going to have eternal life, right? You will have that, but if you really get saved, you will also live out your faith in this life. Every Christian in here that has an ounce of honesty in them, we all admit, oh yeah, we still commit acts of sin, but sin can never dominate our life. Why? Because Paul says, the just shall live. They'll live by faith. They'll live by faith here, and they'll live on and on by faith. How? That's the big question. Who? The just. What's going to happen? They're going to live. How? By faith. Maybe you have on your notes there, what is the single most important thing? You say, well, my grandkids. Now, if you have this, you have something way more value. You say, well, I got a nice house. I got a nice house. I have a good job. Hey, no, we learned last week, you know. Physical outranks financial. We have good health, right? Praise the Lord if you have good health. But that's not the most important thing you can have in this life. You say, what is it? Saving faith. Do you have saving faith? Verse number 16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Believes. Verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith, all the way through, it's about faith. Faith on our end. As it is written, the righteous, they're going to live. How? By faith. Notice the words, listen carefully. You didn't hear these words anywhere here. Uh, I don't know how far in the, in, in the future your page goes. I have pretty large, I require pretty large font these days, okay? But if you were to keep reading, you may read these words, but in this discussion of how to be saved, you do not see the word circumcision. You don't see baptism in your Bible there. You don't see church attendance. You're like, hey, are you against church attendance? No, I want you to come, but come all you want. You'll never be saved by church attendance. You don't see law-keeping. It's nowhere in this discussion. Paul's the best of the best of the Jews and the Pharisees. He was the best. And Paul's not going, hey, how do we get saved, Paul? He doesn't say you've got to offer sacrifices. You have to do hand washings. You have to keep all the ordinances. You have to observe the dietary laws and keep all the Sabbaths. And if you do, he doesn't bring that up anywhere in here. Why? He says, believes and has faith. So here's the thing. If saving faith is the most valuable thing you can have, what is it? This will work. How many feet does that have? Three. What if it had two? Woo. If it had two, it not, wouldn't be very good. About to mess somebody's music up. Saving faith has three parts. You said, boy, I thought, I thought salvation was childlike faith. It is, but it has three very important parts. Write this down. Number one, it's understanding. Saving faith understands some things. 
One of the things I've learned is Anderson's full of people who say, oh yes, I, I believe in Jesus. What they mean is I've heard of him, I know a few facts about him, but they don't really know who he is or what he's done. Listen carefully to what I'm about to say. What, are, what do we have to understand? You have to understand the facts. You say, so before a person gets saved, they need to understand what is salvation. I can't go up to, to Lane in the mall, and I don't know Lane. Hey, Lane, listen, uh, you ever heard of Jesus? You've heard of Jesus, right? Of course he has. You want to go to heaven? Yeah. Well, ask Jesus in your heart. You say, well, if you tell him to ask Jesus in his heart, and he wants to go to heaven, and he's heard of Jesus, believes in Jesus, will he get saved if that's all I have? Christians, is that enough? I told him, ask Jesus in your heart. No, he doesn't know anything. So what do you have to know? You have to know the facts, because the facts are essential. Here's the facts. We're all sinners. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Here's the facts. God's not only holy, but God will not overlook our sin. God will punish our sin. We've earned just ju judgment. We've earned condemnation. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin, the price we've earned. We've worked really hard sinning. We've earned and God will pay death. That's really, really bad. The Old Testament version, here's what the Bible says, the soul that sins, it shall die. But then comes the good news. Here's the facts. God loved us so much that he sent his son to become a human being for the very purpose because he was spirit. He became a human being so he could die on a cross. And because, this is key, because Jesus died on the cross, because he is the son of God, that appeases and satisfies God's holiness. He is actually dealing with the sin and he's paying the punishment for sin. And that sets up the fourth fact. Here it is. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. Salvation's a gift. The facts. So here's the facts. Jeff, is this what I said? I'm a sinner and God has to punish my sin. But Jesus is the Son of God. Took my sin on the cross. And now God says if I'll just believe in Him what He did, I'll have salvation. That's the facts you have to know. You say, well then, great, I'm saved. Hang on. Number two. Agreeing. Saving faith means to agree. You say agreeing, understanding, isn't it the same thing? Have you ever had this conversation with God? And if you haven't, I'm going to invite you right now. You say, yeah, in a minute we'll have the music and we'll have an invitation. Guys, I'm going to invite you like right now, bring God into focus and you can listen to me and I can prompt you. But here's what you have to do to be saved. You don't have to use these words. And you may not cover everything I'm about to say, but you are not saved until you confess, agree, admit, acknowledge something to this effect. God, I am a sinner. You ever done that? Saving faith not only says, oh, I know the facts. Saving faith says, God, I agree with what you said about me. But God, I all, listen, somebody, you need to be doing this right now. But God, I also agree with what you said about Jesus, that he really is your son and he died on the cross and, and it was to pay for people's sins, even my sin. And Lord, I even believe you that it was enough to pay for all of my sins, even the worst of the worst. You say, well, surely if I do that, I'm a Christian. Almost. Say, what else? Depending and trusting. Depending on the wild promises. That confession, man, that is right on the edge. I, but you can, you can admit, yeah, I'm wrong, I'm a sinner. Yeah, Jesus is God. Yeah, Jesus died to pay for people's sins. But until you trust him to have paid for your sins, you will still be in your sins. Say, what is this trusting and this depending? S hear this, saving faith wildly dares to take God at his word. Here's what it is, basically something like this. God, I don't know why you offered salvation for free. I sure don't know why you gave your son for me. But since you did, and you, here's what you said. Catch what I'm about to say. Acts 16, 31, the Bible says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Romans 10, 13, Whosoever, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will not cast him out. Anybody that comes and asks me, I'll not cast him out. Saving faith says, God, I don't understand it. I'll understand these basic facts. I admit, man, that's me, and he is who you said he is, and it counts for me. And so since you put yourself out there and you promised and you can't lie, you said if I put my faith in Jesus that I'll have eternal life. I'm doing it right now. I'm doing it right now. Save me, please. And oh, by the way, thank you for saving. That's saving faith. 
thank you, God, because I take it at this moment. Because salvation is a moment of time. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes. I'm going to ask the musicians to come. And I think we'll just have our heads bowed this morning. We'll not even necessarily stand and sing with them. I'll have them sing in just a moment. Christians continue to pray. I never know who is in our audience. And if I could say it this way, as always, if in any time you're like, man, I need, to, I need to just go be with God and just get things right between me and the Lord down at the altar, and if you want to be left alone, that is fine. Hey, if you're a lady here this morning, you say, I, I just need somebody to kind of pray with me and just kind of agree with me. There's a couple ladies on the front row this morning. They'd be happy to assist you. But if you're like, man, I just need to get alone, then they're not going to bother you. But if you say, I just need someone to pray with me, then in a moment, you feel free to do that. But mainly, here's who I'm talking to. The Bible is very emphatic. That for a person to escape hell in the next life, you're going to have to have righteousness have to have righteousness only the righteous will enter eternal life only the righteous if the unrighteous enter eternal life then the book of the Bible was a book of lies and if the ones that God declared righteous end up not having eternal life then it surely is a book of lies compiled by the worst and cruelest liars in the history of the world because I've put my faith in have righteousness but here's the thing you have none and since you have no righteousness to get you to heaven I'm going to invite you if you haven't done it in the last few minutes would you allow God here's what I'm asking here's the gospel will you allow God to add the righteousness of Jesus because he had it he has it will you let him add his righteousness to your spiritual column this morning because he's already taken your sin and put it in his column He's already died on the cross to pay for your sin. Why would you go to hell to pay for your own sin for eternity? And if you hear that and say, Jeff, that doesn't sound fair. I agree, it's not fair. But he did it, and I'm taking him up on it. Won't you? God is offering powerful, provided righteousness. Powerful, provided righteousness. No one looking around. I'm just wondering. And be honest. Please be honest. Don't raise your hand if, if it's not the truth. Raise your hand if you hear this morning. Say, I'm 100% sure. If you're like 80% sure that you're on your way to heaven, don't raise your hand. But you say, Brother Jeff, I am, I, I've been listening. Praise the Lord. What you've described has happened in my life. I have received the gospel. Would you raise your hand? Just quickly hold it up for a moment. If you're not 100%, don't.
exchange my sin for Christ's righteousness. Lord, since you promised, I want to hold you. I receive right now eternal life that you promised in Christ. I ask you and I am putting my faith and trust in you. Father, I pray